You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli, back with another episode of Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. Last episode, we heard the shift from fighting knights to acts of chivalry. This week, we're leaving Europe to study abroad in Jerusalem. That's right. It's time for the Crusades. Fun! Chris will also explain why the Holy Land is so holy for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Chris... The floor is yours. So now we begin a topic that's a loaded term, the Crusades. And when you study the Crusades, it's very, very complex. I'm only going to do one topic on it now. It's the kind of topic that really needs its own focused study. But we'll do the best we can. I want you to notice that I've chosen to talk about the Crusades in terms of Jews Christians, and Muslims, as opposed to simply a military event. Because the Crusades is the culmination, the high point, and in some ways the low point of this clash of cultures and this mixing of the three dominant cultures um, in the ancient world. And the story of Byzantium is going to come in again um, as well. And we're going to tell the story warts and all. The Crusades has been politicized in many ways, particularly since 9-11 in the United States. And that doesn't concern us here. What concerns us here is, what is the history? When you talk about the Crusades, you actually have to begin by talking about pilgrimage. Because the Crusaders, and when I say the Crusaders, I'm talking about Western Christians. The Crusaders would have seen themselves as armed 
pilgrims. Strikes us as odd, but we have to think the way they thought and not the way we think. We have to think historically. And pilgrimage is one of the major themes of courtly chivalric literature, as we saw in Mallory's Death of King Arthur, that we are all on a journey. And the medieval person had a very strong notion of this. The medieval person lived with death all the time. Childbirth was dangerous. If you cut your hand uh, on a plow and the plow was rusty and it was infected, this is an age before penicillin. So death is a daily experience for these folks. They know they're going to die, and they want to get to heaven after they die. And so the notion, you know, when when we use this expression, they, they say it's going to rain today. They say that that's the conventional wisdom. That expression, they, you know, meaning everybody, in the Middle Ages, they would have used this word via Torres, meaning the pilgrims, the people who were on their way. It was their way of saying they. And this word, homo viator, a viator is a pilgrim, a person on a via, on a way. Homo does not mean men or women, but it means everybody, humankind. Everybody is on a spiritual journey. And the physical journey of our life um, is a mirror of the spiritual journey as well. There were lots of local pilgrimage sites. So if you lived in a certain region of Spain, there might be a local pilgrimage site to a local saint. But there were three big ones in the Middle Ages, and they were Jerusalem in the Holy Land, Santiago de Compostela in Spain, and a lot of people still walk or bike the road to Santiago de Compostela even today. It's a big event um, in the summer, especially in Europe, in Spain, and then in the British Isles, Canterbury, where Thomas Becket um, was martyred in the year 1170. So these are the, the big three. And there are lots of spiritual and physical dangers on these journeys. The physical dangers are obvious. You have to travel a great distance. You are open to uh, hunger. You are open to thirst. You are open to shipwreck. You are open to thieves but spiritual dangers as well. Let's say you go to Santiago de Compostela and you get the prize. The prize was a little scallop shell that you would wear um, on your clothing, um, like a mark, a badge of honor. If you went to Jerusalem, it was a little palm frond and you were allowed to sign documents with your last name Palmer after it to say that you had made that. Well, you might think that you're closer to heaven than your neighbor who didn't make the risk. So there are some spiritual dangers as well. And some of the uh, spiritual writers of the time say, hey, listen, you go on pilgrimage right in your own house every day. You don't have to go on that big journey because you're on a pilgrimage to God um, right there. Nevertheless, people like to travel then and now. And Jerusalem was the pilgrimage site of pilgrimage sites in that period of time. And when you went there to Jerusalem, you would visit a circuit of buildings that were built starting around the 330s. So Constantine in 312 decides that God, the God Jesus, the Son of God, had given him a great victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and he begins to favor Christianity. His mother, Helena, always listen to your mother, says, well, listen, we should go to Jerusalem and we should find the sites of the uh, connected to the life of this God-man Jesus, and we should build uh, buildings there. 
And he says, okay. And so they do that in the 320s and the 330s, and they build a, a church, a domed church, a Romanesque church, or basilica called the Anastasis, right there, and then the resurrection, and then they build something on the site of uh, the crucifixion called the Martyrium, right there, and then bit by bit over time, other memorials are built at the site of Mary's house, at the site of Lazarus's tomb in Bethany. And the building that Constantine puts up in the 330s is, uh, stands for nearly 700 years until it's burned down in a fire in the year 1009 uh, on orders from a caliph named Hakim in Egypt. Even the Muslim sources call him the Mad King, uh, the Mad Caliph Hakim. And then it's rebuilt a little bit in that century. And then once the Crusaders take Jerusalem in 1099, they really build it up again. So Jerusalem was a site for pilgrims, but it was also a scholarly center. There were lots of documents there. After the library at Alexandria burns down, the library at Jerusalem becomes a scholarly center. And Jerome, when he wants to translate the Bible into Latin, he goes there um, to Jerusalem to do it. He lives in Bethlehem and kind of commutes back and forth. Now let's look at this word, crusades. What does this word uh, even mean? The word crusade, now an English word, comes from the Latin word crux, meaning cross, and a cruciator was one who took up the cross, because remember that the crusaders would paint a red cross on their shields and or their tunics, which they wore over their armor, to say that they are taking up the journey. They are taking up the defense of this place where Jesus was crucified. And the word crusades and what it means has become a loaded term. It was a loaded term then and it's a loaded term now. And it's very hard to unpack history from myth and modern applications from myth and history as well. And we're going to try to do that just a little bit in this short time. When I give public lectures on the history of the city of Jerusalem or Crusades, I ask people, why is the Holy Land holy to Jews, Christians, and Muslims? And I say, let's take it in turn. Why is the Holy Land holy to Jews? And most people look at me and they say, well, duh. Why is the Holy Land holy to Christians? And they say, duh. But I say, well, why is the Holy Land holy to Muslims? And they say, huh. Because people generally don't know, non-Muslim audiences don't know, why Jerusalem is the third holiest site to Islam after Mecca and Medina. So, the Jews. For the Jews, the Holy Land is the land given by Yahweh to Abraham and his descendants, and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as we read um, in the Bible. For Christians, it's the site of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what's sometimes called the passion or the kerygma, the, the crucial teaching of the Easter events. But for Muslims, Jerusalem is important because of something called Muhammad's night journey. Um, so somewhere in Muhammad's life, the 610s, the 620s, somewhere in there, um, we read in the Quran that Muhammad is praying He's transported as he prays from where he's praying to a distant shrine. He puts his feet down on, he lands, if you will, on a rock. 
he mounts a white steed or a white ox, depending on the translation, and he goes up to heaven, he comes back down again, he dismounts, and then he returns. And that's known as Muhammad's night journey. So, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And one of the reasons why it's so sad when we see what's going on in the Holy Land today is that remember that Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all monotheists. They share belief in a single unified God, which is different from the polytheists around them um, at the time. And so there's an element of a blood feud, of a family feud, um, from the very beginning of the history of Jerusalem until our own day. We're taking a quick break, but when we're back, Chris details 200 years of multiple crusades. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. What's the Christian context of the Crusades? Pope Urban II doesn't wake up in France on one morning on 1095 and say, hey, let's go on the Crusades. No. The Christian context is the reconquest of Spain from the Muslims, which started in 732, went to 1492, but the key moment was the fall of Toledo uh, Toledo in 1085. And Toledo is just about the middle of the box of the Iberian Peninsula, and the Muslims were really great, great warriors. And so the fact that the Christians could finally 
push Toledo back and take control of it, gave the papacy the notion, hey, if we can beat the Muslims here in the West, maybe we can indeed beat the Muslims there all the way over um, in the East. And so this movement of the reconquest in Spain had an impact on what was going on in the East, and it gave the Pope the idea that we could take the Holy Land back from the infidel or the pagans. Now, that word makes us uncomfortable in an age of interreligious dialogue today, but remember that to Muslims, Christians are the infidel. To Christians, Muslims and Jews are the infidel, the unfaithful ones, and sometimes they even call each other pagans, and it goes both ways. Let's do a little TikTok. I'm not necessarily a big fan of one damn thing after another history, but if we take a look at this, we could see how rapidly the, the Crusades was like a, a, a 200-year movement, um, and then it dissipates. So let's just walk through that chronology um, a little bit. So in the year 1095, Urban II, 10 years after the fall of Toledo in Spain, gives a speech where he says we've got to go and defend the Holy Land defend. That's an interesting notion, huh? Because the Muslims are already there and the Christians are going to go. Doesn't that look like an offensive operation? Well, remember to the Christians, they would have seen it as a defensive operation to take their lands, the Holy Land, back from. So it's interesting that Muslims and Christians both see the Crusades as a defensive war. It sounds like a logical impossibility, but it is the absolute key to understanding what was going on. And in that speech, he pronounces that this is God's will. And in Latin, that is Deus Volt. In French, Deus Lo Volt. And so uh, in uh, movies where you want to uh, describe the Crusaders as fanatics, you see these people yelling, Deus Volt, Deus Volt, all the time. And people pledged to take up the cross, to paint the cross on their bodies, on their clothing, and that they would go to protect pilgrims and to help the East because the Byzantine emperor had sent a request to the Western Pope saying, hey, these, these, uh, these Muslims are getting a little close. I could use some help over here. So the, the Pope has all sorts of explanations, and some people would call them pretexts, for going over there to protect pilgrims, to take the land back in a defensive war, and to help our Eastern Christian Greek brothers, which is a little bit odd because usually they're fighting with each other. So there is a sense of pretext, certainly on that last one. If you are a Western Latin Christian and you define success as taking Jerusalem, then the only crusade which was successful in that, those, that limited term would have been the first crusade. So people leave in the year 1096, the year after the speech by Pope Urban um, II, and they go to Jerusalem, and in the summer of 1099, the Christians take over Jerusalem. And then what happens? The Muslims quickly um, reassert uh, themselves. They fight back a little bit. And then there's a second crusade in 1147 to 1149, preached by Bernard of Clairvaux, praising these knights of the temple or the Templars, which were founded um, between the first and second crusade. And Bernard sees these guys as monk knights, as we saw in the topic before ours. So the Christians are responding to Muslim advances, but the Muslims are just too good. And in 1187, under a great um, Islamic general and diplomat, he was a very interesting man named Sal al-Adin, and he comes across in English translations as Saladin. 
Saladin takes Jerusalem in 1187 after a battle at a place called Hatton, called the Horns of Hatton. And so the third crusade from 1189 to 1192 was the Christian response to the Muslim recapture of Jerusalem under Saladin in 1187. Doesn't work. The Christians cannot take Jerusalem back. So now there's a fourth crusade from 1202 to 1204. So you can see now it's only 110 years since the speech by Urban and we're already on our fourth crusade and the fourth crusade is an absolute abomination, a complete disaster. The Christians can't even get anywhere near Jerusalem, so they got their eyes set on Constantinople, which is a very rich city. And if you remember, a hundred years before, Pope Urban II said, we need to go help our Christian brothers in the East. And those Western knights say, well, what do you mean by help? And so they go to Constantinople, and they don't offer help, they take They burn Constantinople. They don't burn it to the ground, but they burn it and they plunder and they pillage and they rape and and the abominations against women are recorded. Um, and, And these are brother and sister Christians. So you could see that the crusading movement has just, it's just lost its way. It's lost its impetus. It's lost its sanctity, if you want to use that word. It's lost its religious influence and it's become this mire of greed and blood and um, fight infighting. And so when these Western Latin Christians attack Eastern Greek Christians, they take the city over briefly, and even the Pope in Rome starts appointing local bishops, and there's this tremendous battle um, between. So it's almost like you have a little civil war between Western Latin Christians and Greek Eastern Christians within this mega war between Muslims and Christians taking place as well. There's another little crusade, and now the the numbering of the Crusades breaks down here a little bit because the people at the time wouldn't have called it the First Crusade or the Second Crusade or the Third Crusade. They would just have called it the Crusades. Let's remember that in our own memory, World War I wasn't called World War I in 1914 or 1916. It was called the Great War, the war to end all wars. World War I wasn't called World War I until World War II came along, and they had to rename the prior one. So the numbering really breaks down here, but there's this very awful episode that takes place in the year 1212 called the Fifth or the Children's Crusade. And we need to put children's in quotation marks because the the story of this crusade, which is this disastrous debacle, um, is uh, focuses on this word pueri. Pueri is a word which means children, a puer is actually a boy, but pueri is also a word that's used interchangeably with palpores, meaning the poor people. So it's rather unlikely that a bunch of nine-year-old boys and girls went off on crusade, and highly likely that a bunch of peasants who had nothing to lose, who were so in, in such abject poverty, they had nothing to lose, were whipped into a frenzy by a bunch of preachers, and they decided to go off and try to fight a crusade totally unarmed, totally unprepared, without provisions, without money. And the whole thing you know, barely gets out of Italy, and most of those people are captured killed and sold into slavery. So you could see that the crusading ideal, wrapped up in knighthood and chivalry, reaching back to El Cid and the Song of Roland, is just collapsed um, at this point. And there's uh, the, the, the end of this part of the story really is in 1291, where the last Christian stronghold in the Holy Land 
is lost. So this kind of fervor lasted about 200 years from 1095 to 1291. Now within that chronology, I'd like to look at some special topics. The notion of just war and jihad, Christians and Jews, Christians and Muslims a little more closely, and the notion of crusading against heretics. Just a few words on each. The idea of just war, not, oh, just war, but a war that is justified, a war that is just, reaches back into Hebrew scripture from Deuteronomy, reaches back to Plato in the Greek world, Cicero in the Roman world. That is pre-Christian times, but it's really Christianity that takes on the notion that there are certain circumstances in which war is justified. Jihad, which is a word that is often related to 9-11 and a fatwa that was issued, a command that was issued by Osama bin Laden, whether or not he had the authority um, to issue it. And jihad is, is in modern, particularly American terms, a war of radical Islam against Western civilization. That's not what jihad is. Jihad in the Quran and in Muslim teaching is a struggle, a striving to do good. And the greater jihad is the struggle against yourself. And the lesser jihad is the struggle against someone else, uh, a physical armed struggle. And what we find are these similarities and differences between Christians and Muslims when it comes to just war and jihad. Both of these ideas, by the way, mixed up in the reconquest, bubbling around in the reconquest, and then coming to uh, fruition in the scholastic movement. But you find among Christians and Muslims that they agree for a war to be justified, there must be the big three. There must be the right intention, there must be a just cause, and there must be a legitimate authority. So violence, think now of the peace and truce of God in the last topic, violence is not intrinsically evil, but it is deemed necessary, right? You think of the fact that you would never um, hit your neighbor, but if your neighbor came at you with a knife to attack your husband or wife or children, you wouldn't think twice about using violence against that person, right? We would call something, if it led to the point of death, justifiable homicide, right? That's something common that we live with. So this notion in Just War Jihad is that violence is not intrinsically evil, but it is deemed necessary in certain limited circumstances of a right intention, a just cause, and a legitimate authority. And a lot of this is, is uh, played out in the Spanish context. Christians and Jews. Wow, when we talk about the Crusades, when we think about Christians and Muslims, yes, but in Christians and Jews um, are tied up in the Crusades as well, um, and particularly in two incidents. One is, I mentioned earlier that in the year 1009, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that had been built by Constantine in the 330s with his mother, Helena, was burned down in 1009 by a character that even the Muslim sources, as I said, call the Mad Caliph Hakim, who happened to be in Egypt. Now, through some very strange twists and turns, far from that area in France, a bunch of Christians decide that the Jews in their area had somehow, from France, put Hakim up to it and paid him bribed him to issue an order from Egypt to burn down the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Totally, you know, literally unbelievable. And that led to a massacre, a pogrom of these French Jews. In fact, in the Second Crusade, the First Crusade a bit, in the Second Crusade especially, there were pogroms along the Rhine 
um, against Jews because now the knights are traveling on land and they're going to go to the Rhine and the Danube and get on ships because it's, it's quicker and cheaper to, to transport their uh, horses and their armor along these ships. And they write and they say to each other, listen, now you have to really think historically here. Let's not condone this, but think of how they're thinking. We're going all the way over there to kill the infidel, the pagans, to defend um, our land against the Muslims who despoil the land of Jesus. Aren't there Jews among us, they say, and aren't those Jews responsible for the killing of Jesus, a fact that the Catholic Church no longer teaches, but at that time was common information? Isn't it true that that's what happened? And as we go along, uh, can't we avenge the death of Jesus along the way? Isn't that kind of two for one? We can kill the Jews and then kill the Muslims? It's an awful way of thinking. It turns our stomachs. But that's how they were thinking, and it's right there in the sources. And in fact, we have accounts of Jews who commit suicide rather than convert um, at that period of time. Christians and Muslims. One of the interesting things is when you read accounts of the Crusades, we have lots of accounts of the Crusades on both sides, is that there's this odd, grudging admiration between Christians and Muslims of the military skill. Um, We see Muslims and Christians saying, boy, these warriors are fierce. Now, it could be that they're building up their enemy to make their victory, either side, to make their victory bigger, right? If I say, my enemy cannot be killed and he's a monster and the whole bit, and I beat him, then my victory is all the better. So there's this admiration, not always begrudging of the military skill, but real misunderstanding about the other's religious beliefs. It's kind of interesting to hear Muslims talk about Christians and Christians talk about Muslims. But then you get some insights. For instance, Christians believe in a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. There's one Muslim source that says, when the Christians pray. They pray, by God, by God, by God. Now that's interesting, because it says that the Muslims had some understanding of this trinity. So there was some interaction. The very end of our period, um, the crusading indulgence, that if you fight and you die, you'll go straight to heaven, gets transferred from fighting outside the faith, fighting the infidel, the Muslims, to inside the faith. The idea of crusading is transferred to within. And so if you fight heretics, then that is going to help you get to heaven as well. So crusading has developed over time. And right about the time the crusades wears out, something happens that no one saw coming. The Black Death. Thanks for listening to another episode of Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. Next week, the plague is coming! The plague is coming! Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World, from One Day University, is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. 
With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.